This morning I'm going to ask if you would take your Bibles and, and turn to Luke chapter 18. Uh, we have been involved in a series uh, called A Spirit of Generosity, which I, I mentioned at the beginning. I've been taking a lot of my thoughts from a study that Tim Keller did on some of the parables in Luke, and, and we've been kind of directing them as God percolated to the top some ideas of generosity as it relates to our life. And uh, we have been learning that generosity is, is, has a lot more to do than just our money, that it has a lot to do with the generosity of our forgiveness and relationships, the generosity of our time and talents and, and the way that we allow God to use us in ministry, uh, emotional generosity, and, and uh, how we use each of these currencies under the leadership of the Holy Spirit uh, to influence people for Christ. And, uh, of course, people have been asking me, Pastor, when are you going to start talking about money? I mean, you, you've been talking about generosity all this time, and you, you're not even talking about money. So today, in, in reply to all of your cries about when are you going to talk about money, I, I want to be obedient to the Lord and to you as well. And so we're going we're to speak today about uh, some issues as it relates to generosity and our money. Luke chapter 18, I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 30. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, What is impossible with men, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Father, we ask for your direction this morning over these next few moments that as we handle the preciousness of your word that through your Holy Spirit you would apply it in ways where we can each learn and keep things in perspective as you lead us and guide us into having a spirit of generosity in every area of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler, there are three things that become rather apparent as we look at this. Number one, he begins to speak of the danger of money. Number two, why money is dangerous spiritually. And then how can we escape the danger? And if you have your bulletin, there's an outline there in the back that you can begin to jot down some notes if you would like to do so. As we begin with the first point of the danger of money spiritually. In verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a metaphor, of course, and it's a, it's a metaphor of impossibility. The camel at that time was the largest land mammal that would have been known to the people that he was talking to. They didn't know what an elephant was, and so he's using something that they would understand, and he's, he's speaking in a metaphorical way of some things that are just absolutely impossible. In fact, for us, it would be, you know, he would probably talk to us and said, it's the same impossibility as a snowball's chance in Miami. There's just not much of a chance for those things to, to take place there. And so it's the metaphor of impossibility. Now, as we look at that, we have to say, is he saying that it is impossible for rich people to get to heaven? And for other people that may not have so much money, it's not so hard. Is, is that what Jesus is saying here? And if you were to look at the totality of Scripture, you would say that if that is what Jesus was trying to imply there, then we have a problem. Because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were, were fabulously rich. And David and Solomon and Job were fabulously rich. And Joseph of Arimathea, who was a friend of Jesus, was fabulously rich. And they were saved, were they not? They were in relationship with God. So if we take this metaphor of impossibility and apply it that Jesus is saying that rich people can never enter into the kingdom of God, but if you're poor, then the chances are much better, then we would be mistaking what the Scripture is saying. In fact, if you look carefully at verse 26, who then can be saved was the question, and Jesus says this, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Now you'll notice that in this verse as he's responding, he doesn't say what is impossible for rich people. He says what is impossible for all men is possible with God. So what he's saying here is consistent with what he is saying throughout the rest of the Bible, and that is all salvation is a miracle. The fact that any of us could ever be able to approach a holy God Without the fact that Jesus Christ has done something for us to open a door, it would be impossible for any of us to ever know God if it were not for Jesus. In fact, it tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. It doesn't say for the rich have sinned. It says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, it is impossible for any man or any woman to be saved if it was not for God's intervention. God does the impossible the supernatural, the miracle to provide an open door for us through His grace. So he is not backing away and saying that for most of us it's easy to be saved, but for the rich it's hard. He's saying that it is impossible for anybody to be saved if it were not for the grace of God. You cannot do it on your own is what he's saying. So we look at this and then we say, why then does he pick on the rich here? And I believe that the reason that he does this is given within the answer of there are spiritual problems that we all have in our life that are accentuated in our lives by money. There are things that we face that are accentuated. They're made worse by money. So the same thing that makes salvation impossible for all of us money has the power to make those temptations and those things much worse within our life therefore Jesus is warning you about the spiritual dangers of money 
And I don't know how many of you have ever spent much time in the book of Proverbs. I try to spend a little bit of time just about each day in Proverbs because of the wisdom that it gives to us. But the, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about money. If you look at it, it, it says things like this. If you work hard, you will earn the money that you need to live. That if you're lazy, then don't expect everybody else to pick up and, and just give you things because there's a, a correspondence between your work effort, your work ethic, and the provision that come into your life. It says money that is earned by good hard work and, and honest work is good. And yet in Proverbs, you'll discover as you read it that God places red flags constantly around this subject of money. In other words, he said money is incredibly good, but it's also incredibly dangerous. It's kind of like fire. And if you think about it, it's kind of like God also. And so where does the red flags come that he puts around money? Number one, it speaks often to the fact that money has the ability to corrupt people. It can make honest people dishonest because of the temptation of money. Money might not make you dishonest, but it also has the power to make you ruthless. It can make you hard. It can make you non-compassionate. It can make you cynical. And it can make you uncaring. And we all know this. We all know this. That the power that money can have on people. We are all aware that the power of money is there to, to corrupt people and to make them ruthless. But there are a couple of spiritual consequences that Proverbs speaks of that we might not readily recognize but are very important. One of those is this. Money has the power to distract you from what is really important. Money has the power to distract you from what's really important. Proverbs 11.4 says this. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. What, what we begin to look at here is this. Money and the pursuit of money can make people incredibly busy. In fact, if you look at the term business... And you break it down, it is busyness. Busyness. The pursuit of money can make us incredibly busy and can distract us. It can take so much time to make the money that we want to that it becomes all-absorbing. And then when you actually make the money, do you know that it takes time to spend it? Black Friday is coming. And there will be people working incredibly hard to spend the money that they have made. And some of you buy houses with your money. And when you buy a house, that's the end of your life. You'll spend forever trying to make it the way you want it. We become frantically busy to make it. Frantically busy to sustain it. And then whatever you buy, honestly, can make you even busier. I had a conversation a number of years ago with a man who was in a church that I had pastored. And, and he had gone from being incredibly poor to incredibly wealthy through the business that he had made. And, and at a crisis time in his life, we had an opportunity to sit down. And he began to share with me about the fact that as his life was transformed through a business that he was involved with, he said, 
Suddenly, everything that I was longing for when I was poor began to be poured into my lap more and more. And he said, the more money I made, the more things I could buy. And the more things I could buy began to take me away from the very things that were the most important in my life. And he said, I suddenly realized that my pursuit of money had derailed my life and was derailing my family as a result of the things that it brought. And he said, I had to make some radical change in my life and my lifestyle to reflect that God was still the most important thing to me. And he says, I begin to realize just how easy the pursuit of money is to fall into the trap of. And here's a place where we get so busy that we don't even have time to ask ourselves the questions of, what am I really here for? What has God created for my life to do? What am I accomplishing in life? You see, making money seems so important until the time comes when you recognize that it wasn't. And I have sat by the deathbed of many people, and I have never had one of them ever say to me, Oh, pastor, I wish I had spent more time in the office while I was still healthy. I wish I had spent far more time accumulating wealth and, and gathering things to my nature. But many people at the end of their life have discovered that money had distracted them from cultivating things like character, from cultivating things like relationships, and all of the love that, are, that is really important, and they became so busy with the pursuit of it that they failed to cultivate things. Scripture says wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. And yes, this can mean judgment day, and I believe that it was aimed that way, but I believe that there's a far broader meaning that, that can be ap applied in our lives today as to the day of wrath than just the fact that we know that when we die, we can't take it with me. And So let me just explain a couple of these peripheral meanings that I believe that is intended here in Scripture. One of the deep delusions that money can cause is it can cause you to believe, and, and falsely, I might add, that if you have it, you are safe. That if you have money, you are safe. It can give you a strong sense of, I've, I've got it. I can finally insulate myself from the things of the world that can harm me. And so we begin to think that somehow this this money can protect us in ways that it, it really can't, and people that have it can begin to rest in that, and they relax. Listen to me today. I don't care how much money you have, people will still betray you in relationships. It does not insulate you from the harm or the hurt that comes from those types of things. It will never be able to insulate you or remove you from the fact that you will still grieve when people that you love die and the bereavement process. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You will still have to hear from time to time. The doctor looked at you and said, there's nothing further we can do. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, you begin to recognize it could not insulate you from bad news regarding your health. Nor can money ever protect you from unexpected financial disasters. No amount of money can stop those things from happening to you. And they will happen to you. And because you think that money has made you safe, what happens is you relax and rather than tying yourself into the, the truth and the power of the Word of God, you sit back and you think yourself you're safe and you become incredibly vulnerable to the attacks of an enemy. 
Because when the day of wrath comes in the times in which we live, you will not have developed the character you need or the faith that you need and the things that you really need to get you through that day of disappointment. Money can't stop death. It can't stop heartbreak. It can't stop tragedy. And it won't. And you must be ready for those things. Secondly, I believe implied with this is also money distorts your ability to view yourself properly. And this is even worse than the first part. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, the end of verse 8 into verse 9, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I might have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? You know, if you became educated in a certain discipline, if you became educated in American history or you became educated as a family counselor, chances are you would not think that you contain all knowledge of all the information. You would understand that I, I'm trained in this specific area. But tendencies seem to prove that if for some reason an individual makes a killing financially in something, if they begin to make a lot of money, there is a tendency to begin to start to think that you are smart about everything. That there's nothing that I can't speak to because I've got money, which indicates to everybody around me that I must be smart, and you begin to believe that, and it distorts your ability to view yourself properly. There's something about wealth that makes you think, oh, I understand it all. It causes you to overtrust your own intuitions, to overtrust in your wisdom, and to start to think, ask me, because I'm an expert about everything. And this is dangerous at several levels. Number one, it brings pride. It puts you in a place where you begin to think in your own heart, I am capable of providing for myself. And so whether you say it out loud or not, by the, by the way that you live your life and the, by the way you're observed, you're saying, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Money can distort your view of yourself in this way. Pursuit of it can make you choose a bad career. A career that maybe you weren't created for. I could go through any number of illustrations of people who felt very strongly in their own life that they were created with gifts and talents that would lead them to something, but the reason they didn't get educated in that is because they stopped and they said, there's no money in that. And so they redirected to something that would provide them money, but no personal fulfillment. And you know what? That adrenaline of working and earning money will last for about five to ten years, but I've discovered there comes a time in the life of every individual and young adulthood as they're beginning to transition when they begin to look at this and say, this is not nearly as fulfilling as I thought it would be. Because the pursuit of money can cause you to choose careers that might not be what God had wanted for you. And you find yourself profoundly unfulfilled because money distorted your view of who you really are you overtrust your intuitions and you quit asking God for guidance and you were too proud to take advice because you knew money made you think that you knew more than you really do do you know that money can cause you to make terrible decisions about who to marry I can't tell you how many times I've heard parents in discussions with their children as they we're looking at the opportunities of who to be attracted to and have them say, well, you know what? They make a lot of money. 
That becomes attractive. And as a result of that, people are making decisions about who to spend life with on all of the wrong reasons. And they get into those relationships and they begin to recognize money was not the answer. That there's a lack of character and a lack of caring and a lack of compassion that makes life very difficult. But money can do that and the pursuit of it. The reason it makes it hard is because when you're pursuing that, money takes away your humility. It makes you proud and, and, and you become hard-hearted in, in instances. They don't know how to say I'm sorry and forgive me and there's nothing more vital to human relationships than humility. And perhaps worst of all, the pursuit of money and having money can blind you to how important it really is to you. Because you will never admit to yourself how important money really is. And that's the nature of addiction. Of never admitting how important something really is to you. So there's the danger of money. It doesn't have to be dangerous, but it can become very dangerous very, very easily. And we as the people of God need to be able to keep a proper perspective on that. So secondly, why is money so dangerous spiritually? Why does money have this incredible power? If you look in verses 18 through 21, it said, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. And in verse 21, the young man said, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, honestly, when we look at this and we capture it within the context of everything that's going on in that chapter, any Christian looks at this and goes, what is going on here? And the reason that we are shocked with the words of Jesus is because Jesus basically responds to this young man and said, if you keep the Ten Commandments, you're going to be saved. Isn't that what you see there? And we all know that's not true. What is Jesus doing? Why is he telling him that if he lives a good life, that he will inherit eternal life? And we're looking at this, and, and we are stunned. But if you look at it in the totality of the passage, you'll notice that earlier in this very chapter, Jesus talks about a proud Pharisee who was standing there praying, saying, I am so glad, I'm getting, God, I'm not like that man over there. Look at me, Lord. I'm good. In fact, I know that every time you look at me, you just smile at how well you did with me. I'm sure that you're talking to the father going, did you see that man? We did so good with him. And then you see over on the other side a tax collector who can't even lift up his head and he's down, he's beating his chest and he's, he's crying out for mercy. And God indicates to that, Jesus says, it was the one who humbled himself that became the one who was saved and tells us the Pharisee did not. So the Pharisee is one who's living what Jesus just said they needed to do. And we look at that and go, what a tremendous inconsistency. So when he tells the young ruler, if you just do these things, you'll be all right. And the young ruler says, I have done them. I'm doing those things since I was a little boy. So what Jesus is doing here confuses us on the, on the surface. And we say, why? why didn't Jesus just look at the young man and say, you know what you need? You need me. I've come to this earth. I'm going to die for you. You need a savior. You need somebody to rescue you. And the reason that Jesus didn't do that is because he's a wonderful counselor. He knows everybody individually. And when Jesus works with people, he never works with each individual the same way. He knows our hearts. He knows how to reach us. And his insight is so unique with each of us that he knows what it takes to unlock the keys of our own hearts. And so he never approaches the gospel the same way. 
And the reason that Jesus didn't just explain the plan of salvation to him is the young man doesn't think he has a problem. He thinks he's all right. And if Jesus had told him, I've come to take away the sins of the world, I've, I've come to take away your sin problem, I've, I've come to die for you, the young man would have looked at him and said, what sin problem? I don't need a savior. I don't have a sin problem. I'm pretty good. I just told you I do all of these things. Why are you here to take away my sin problem? Because look what he says in verse 21. All these things I have kept. How long? Since I was a boy, basically saying, since I was before the age of accountability, I've lived a pretty perfect life. In my eyes, I'm good. In fact, I'm sure you and the Father that created me have talked oftentimes about, look how well we did with this rich young giver. This is the attitude that he's beginning to walk around with. And our culture is infected with that kind of a mindset, the same attitude as that young man. There's a British journalist by the name of Polly Toynbee She's not a Christian at all. In fact, oftentimes she writes of her disdain for Christianity. And she wrote this. Of all of the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant to me is the notion that Christ took our sins upon himself, sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. And then she responds this way. Did I ask him to? You see her point? She's saying, I don't need a savior. I don't need somebody to do all that for me. I didn't ask him to do that for me. What makes you, Jesus, look at my life and think somehow I'm missing something that only you can provide? The arrogance of self-sufficiency is unbelievably apparent. She says, I don't need to be rescued. I'm fine. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the magic, but I don't need a rescuer, and that's exactly what this young man was saying to Jesus. But Jesus, in his ability to perceive the heart of a man and woman, begins to recognize that in spite of his security and his own goodness, there's an insecurity that is there as well because he wouldn't have approached him if there wasn't some insecurity. And so Jesus knew he was not quite as confident as he tried to persuade uh, pers- portray himself to be and this is the problem that all of us that need to get right with God or or believe that we can be good with God by just living a good life and doing good deeds because in our thoughts and our minds deep down we're always wondering am I really good enough have I really done enough to earn it and so they're always laced with an insecurity because they're never sure they've done enough and so the rich young ruler says I've been good since I was a boy and Jesus says okay 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 let's You lack one thing. Sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor. It'll be a huge blessing to them. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. And honestly, we look at this, and and we're a little shocked with this statement because Jesus has never used this tactic with anybody before. It's the first time. There's no other place that he says, if you want to be saved, give all of your money away. And when you begin to tie that in with his discussion about being good, we're going, where is he going with all of this? And some of us are looking at this going, why is he sticking it to this young man? The man was interested, had an interest in what was going on, but really when you look at it, Jesus is using a brilliant strategy personally and theologically here. And here's the way it is, the personal strategy. 
Do you remember in John 4 when Jesus is going to a well in Samaria and he sits down and he meets a woman that's there? And he begins to speak to this woman about salvation, but he uses the term living water. He's there and he said, would you get me some water? And, and, and at the end of that, she is saying, I want this living water. Because he said, if you knew who I was and that I had living water, you would never thirst again. And she goes, I want that. And he goes, okay, go and get your husband. And she says, well, I'm not married. And Jesus knew because he's God. He says, you're right, you're not married. In fact, the man you're living with now is not your husband. And the five men that you've been married to previously um, indicate that there's some issues in your life. And he has this interaction with her as he's talking about something that will transform her life. And in the middle of all that, he doesn't bring up money to her because money was not her issue. Just like he doesn't bring up sex and romance and relationships to the rich young ruler because that was not his issue. Jesus is bringing up money to the rich young ruler because money is his living water. It's what he's always had. It's what he's always depended on. It's what is most important to him. And so Jesus challenges his support system. It's his scorecard. It's his identity. It's his security. He thinks it's the reason that he's an important person. But Jesus looks at him and instantly recognizes money is the thing that's squeezing God out of your life. And this is linked then from the personal strategy to a theological strategy. The young man had just told Jesus that he's kept all of the commandments. We saw it right there in Scripture. Not only has he kept them all, he believes that he's kept them all from the age of accountability to now. From the time I was a little boy, I've been perfect. Now, some of you grandparents think your grandkids are perfect. And so Jesus, in a theological strategy, says, okay, let's start there. Let's start, let's start right there. What's the first commandment? Well, the first commandment, the young man would say, was, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He goes, okay, let's test that one right there. Let's just start with the first one. You've kept them all. And he says to him, can you conceive of giving all of your money away? Are you willing to give up all of your money to come and live with me? And when you live with me, I'll care for you, I'll protect you, I'll keep you, I'll provide for you. You're coming to me asking if there's something missing in your life, and I'm telling you, I can provide everything that you need. Are you willing to do that? And of course, the young man couldn't do that because money was more important to him than God. Money was his God. And in verse 23, the scripture says, when he heard this, he became very sad. Now, the, an interesting thing about this term, very sad, is it, it's way, way, way stronger of a term than we can put in English. Really, it means that by the self-realization, he was staggered as he understood himself. It literally staggered his whole being that God would reveal to him, and suddenly he began to understand, I'm, I'm not as good as I thought I was. And it said it staggered him because he was a man of great wealth. And the reason that he is so sad and deeply distressed and staggered is because money was not just money to him. It was what men were to the woman at the well in John 4. It is what money is to a lot of us. It's really more important. And, and in the end, there are many that would say, I want God in my life just as long as it doesn't get in the way of my pursuit of money. Because money is really what matters to me, more than a relationship with God. And if people were to review our life and the way we live, 
what conclusions would they come to in observing us as to what is most important within our life? And so theologically, he showed the young man that he had not obeyed the commandments. In fact, he couldn't even get by the very first one, let alone all the rest of them. And the man is staggered in the self-realization. And so what Jesus is saying here is you cannot get to heaven by obeying the Ten Commandments. You need a Savior. You need a rescuer. So you see why money has spiritual power? Because it can become a false Savior to us. So how can we escape the danger? How can you make sure that the power of money is not distorting your life? I'm going to give you three steps, and here's what they are. Number one, assume you're in denial. Number two, look to the rich young ruler. And number three, have a plan. And I'm going to go through these very quickly. I'm going to be very practical here. First of all, assume you're in denial. In verse 24, it says that Jesus looked at him, looked at the young man. Now, in, in, in Matthew and Mark, it talks about Jesus looked at him and I loved him. In other words, this conversation from Jesus to him is, I'm telling you all of this because I love you. How many of you know the Lord corrects us out of love? He looked at him and said to the young man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is Jesus being so blunt? I mean, this is like a slap in the face to this young man. Why is he doing this? Why is he being so strong? Because he's treating this young man as if he is under the influence. For those of you that may have people that you know and, and, and perhaps they've drank too much and they're pulling their keys out and they're about to, to drive, you'll go over to them and you'll grab them by the arm and say, what are you doing? And you'll take the keys from them and, and you'll have to treat them a little abruptly to bring them to their senses. And this is what Jesus was doing to this young man. Jesus is acting and treating him as if he's under the influence. And here's what we need to know. Being Americans, we need to assume that we are all under the influence of money. Just assume it. We need to assume this about ourselves, that we are in denial about how important it really is to us and that the amount of money you think you need is, really, uh, is, is more than you really need. The way that money can grab a hold of you we need to begin to assume that we can give more away than we really can, than we really think that we can. Just assume these things. We're in denial about it. And we need to understand that. Secondly, look to the rich young ruler. Some of you are going, why, why would we look to the rich young ruler? Man, he failed in this. If we look at this, we realize that it appears that he walked away and did not get converted. When presented with a choice, he made the wrong one. But if you look a little more closely at this passage, there's something fascinating there. There were two rich young rulers in this discussion. There was the young man, and there was Jesus. Jesus is probably 31 or 32 at this time. Unbelievably wealthy in everything that he has. And Jesus had all of the glory and all of the riches and all of the power of heaven he had everything, more than we could ever comprehend would be his wealth and his power and his rule. And Jesus gave all of that up to go into poverty to reach us who were poor. Gave it all up. And so here's one rich young ruler in Jesus having a conversation with another rich young ruler who says, my money is more important than you. And Jesus is looking at him and saying, you have no idea the benefits that come when you give everything that you think is important up for what is really important. And so in heaven, when we get there and we stand before him, we will be 
the wonderful reward that Jesus has earned because he gave up his riches to give it to us who are poor so that we can be rich in his grace. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Oh, hallelujah! That we get to enjoy the richness of relationship because he was willing to give everything up to come and to, to reach us. We benefit from his sacrifice with great joyfulness, and we realize that Jesus is the only wealth we, we really need and is all that really matters. And when we realize this about Jesus, the joyfulness that comes to us from the gift that God gave to us drains all the power out of money and it just becomes money. It's no longer our security. It's no longer a false savior. It's just money. And when it's just money, we use it as a tool and we can give it away for the glory of God. You also need to have a plan. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Take a really close look at what's going on in your life. Take a close look at your finances. If you're not close to 10%, you can go ahead and start the music. That's fine. I'm wrapping it up. If you're not giving close to 10%, you need to take a look at that because the tithe in the Old Testament is 10%. And I'm going to speak a little bit more about this next week and clarify some of this for you. But the Lord is asking for us to be obedient in what he provides for us. Some of you need to figure out what sacrifices you need to make within your life in order to be able to aggressively work toward being able to give 10%. One of the things that I hate about our, our culture today, especially in America, is that so many people are wrapped up in, in debt. That just trying to get out of debt is such a huge thing. The number of folks that we've had that have been coming to Christ, and especially when you come to Christ and you're already established in life and, and you've had spending habits your whole life, and I want you to know that we're going to be offering classes on financial peace and how can we bring things together. But Whatever we need to do, the Lord is saying, if you will put me first, you'll see how I can provide in everything else. And we want to provide tools to help you in that. But be honest with yourself as you take a look at it. Some of you can give more than you are, and it still won't be a sacrifice. And if that's the case, then you're not giving enough because God asks us to give sacrificially. And then hold yourself accountable. Accountability is something we kind of run from. Lord, I'll do this, but I don't want to let anybody else know what's going on so that if I fail, I don't look bad. But there's something to be said about being a part of the family of God where we have people to walk alongside of us. And there are, there are folks that can lovingly and gently provide help and accountability in the areas of, of bringing our life into a balance. And there's some of you that are really saying, I don't, I don't know if I have the courage to do that. Can I tell you this? It's not courage that you need, it's joy. It's joy. The Lord talks about a cheerful heart in giving, a joyful heart in giving, which comes from the understanding that the rich young ruler of heaven has given everything away and we who are poor have received it. And you know when you give something to somebody in need, how joyful they are? He says that's the attitude by which we are to live life and we as children of God are to demonstrate the way that we live life. Just be people who are joyful. You don't need courage. You need more joy. 
And I pray that God will give us direction as we begin to outline and look at things within our life of how we can be people that recognize that money is not our salvation. Money is a tool that the Lord puts into our hands and we use. And like I said, in the, the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack this a little bit more. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me this morning.